Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time to take another weekly journey we call Living Hope, designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer, sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With our host, who's been dealing with it for a while, she's going to bring another fellow long-term survivor in, Laura. Um, well, I'll let you introduce her. <laughs> Thank Let's bring in Roberta Luna first here. Mixing up names. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. It's good to be back. And today I'm really happy and honored to have Lori McCutskill join us. Lori is a professional speaker, motivator, patient advocate, cancer life coach, and a 17-year pancreatic cancer survivor. Thank you, Lori, for joining us today. I first met Lori, I want to say it was either 2008 or 2009. It was my first advocacy, and that was in 2008. So I'm not sure when we first met, but I know it was back a long time ago. Seems like a long time ago anyway. It was. And it just already makes me so <laughs> emotional, Roberta, because you have been such a life force from the very beginning. I'll just never forget you and Vic. What just your attitude, your approach to the disease and your survival, and you're so determined and such a fighter. I learned a lot from you early on, so thank you. Oh my God, you're making me emotional now too, because I was going to actually say the same thing. I mean, I've learned so much from you, which I think, you know, is just truly amazing. I really appreciate your fight and your tenacity as well to, you know, keep going. And I know it's difficult when, you know, the doctor sits there and tells you, I'm sorry, you have pancreatic cancer. You only have three to six months to live. And you're like, what? I'm sure you heard those same words. What did you think or what did you feel when that doctor said that to you? Well, it's not unlike, I think, every other patient, whether it's pancreatic, when you hear that word cancer, but certainly pancreatic. I was seemingly in perfect health. And I tell the story that I exercise enthusiast, I can't eat enough green vegetables, diligent about my health checkups. And when I heard, I'm sorry, you have pancreatic cancer, I literally told the doctor, I said, that's a death sentence. You have the wrong file. I'll wait until you get the right file. I thought I had an infection. I had a backache and I was being dismissed. And I know, Roberta, and I want to hear from you, but I know you have a lot of lessons and things that we have learned from this journey. And one of them for me, I had no idea at the time because I had never been sick, but I learned about using my voice because either the backache was, I pulled a muscle exercising, I know what that feels like and this was different, or it's my imagination, nothing is there, mm -hmm. or this, I had gas, take an enema. So if I had listened to them and waited and done nothing for a period of time, I might not be having this conversation with you right now. So one of the most important lessons really was, and still is, using your voice listen to your instincts and i know you did that as well yeah i did because when i first had came across pancreatic cancer it was in 1998 when my dad passed away and finding out that his mother also died from pancreatic cancer, when I talked to my doctor about it, he told me not to worry about it for when I was too young. I was only in my 40s, and it wasn't hereditary. And it was, you know, not until years later, and this was in 1998, until 2002, when it hit again, losing my uncle, my dad's brother, 
and again going to my doctor and at that time I was actually having some symptoms but they were like you say very vague it was mostly nausea not able to keep food down losing weight just things they wanted to associate with everything else and when I asked them about pancreatic cancer again was told I was too young and it wasn't hereditary and my doctor's answer to me was well let's just wait and see and I was like, I don't want to wait and see. I saw my dad go from 170 pounds to probably 70 pounds. And I didn't want to see that from my family. I didn't want them to go through that. So I actually just demanded that, you know, let's get started. Let's look at the pancreas. And if it's not, then we can go somewhere else. What I thought was funny is his first reaction was, maybe you're pregnant. I did not have diarrhea during any of my pregnancies. So I knew that wasn't it right and then to be told let's look at your gallbladder which he had taken out years earlier again was like something yeah it's just like no we need to look I'm concerned so you know I just wrote a blank check and said let's do it and from there again though why do we have to be that voice that we know our own bodies you know most of us you know we're not hypochondriac so when we go to the doctor there's a reason for it why do they not listen when we are saying there's something wrong my body is telling me there's something wrong Let's look at it. look at the pancreas, and if it doesn't show anything first, then go to where you think, exactly. and then let's go back. Because I know it took them six to eight months to find my dad's cancer, so it doesn't always show up right away. Right. Yeah. But I think I know from the very beginning when I met you and the work that we've done with PanCan and with other organizations and the advocacy work we do on our own, I know we are heightening the awareness of the symptoms of this disease and what needs to be done. And I know 17 years ago when I was diagnosed, again, pancreatic cancer was not considered a symptom as it was considered, you know, there's so many other symptoms and diseases that are far less severe and serious that they will take into consideration, but not pancreatic. I believe that's all changing today because of our advocacy, raising our voice, and really when you and I were on the Hill lobbying Congress, really bringing attention to what's needed for this disease. So I hope the listeners out there that they go online and they look at what the symptoms are. And just because you're bloated or you have a backache or some of these other symptoms doesn't immediately mean you have pancreatic cancer. However, if it persists for some unknown reason, definitely get it checked. And it's not something to be terrified of because it could be something very, very simple and easy and curable. So really it's just to take note and be aware. And just to get that early diagnosis. I mean, right. if you know, right. if it is unfortunately pancreatic cancer, we've learned or as we see the earlier diagnosed, the better the chances of the long survival. Right. But and I know you're so involved, well we've both been so involved with fabulous PanCan. And I'm also now involved with what we're talking about and the importance of it, precedestudy.org, which is for prevention and early detection for pancreatic cancer. And that's exactly what we need. And I know other organizations are definitely studying this, which is great. What sets this one apart is that it is multidimensional, global, and collaborative. So much like the COVID vaccine was approved in an unprecedented time of 12 to 12 months, that would have never happened in any other time. Normally it's what, seven to 15 years for a vaccine. It's because they shared the data. So with this one, definitely increasing the five-year survival rate from 12% to 50% in the next 10 years will be fantastic. And that's exactly what we need. 
And you and I are very unique. We are lucky. You're 21 years, Roberta. This is extraordinary. And what you've done to raise your voice, to raise funds, to heighten awareness of what's needed. And I'm 17 years, and I'm so glad that we're here and that we're having this conversation and we can celebrate and continue to advocate. I agree with you. And thank you again. Again, you're going to make me emotional again. But (laughs) it it is. And it's great to be here with you because, like I said, we met early on. And I don't know if you remember that first meeting, but we were actually in my representative's office, which I won't name because it did not go very well. And I don't know if you remember, but you were actually hooked up. You were hooked up to your port and the alarm went off in the middle (laughs) and she made a very unsurely comment which again like i said unfortunately the comment was we all die and it it was just a a point in time where you know this is somebody who's supposed to be representing us and she to come out and say that was and roberta her sister died of pancreatic cancer i don't know if it was i think it was at that time or it was the next time that we went i remember that yeah she had a best friend she had an uncle so she had an involvement so why take that attitude? It was really difficult to stomach. But again, we kept going back and finally we did get her on board. Um, it just took a little bit of effort. But again, thank you for that. And I know, you know, we've talked a little bit about the symptoms, but because they can be so vague, can you just give us a little bit of, of what your symptoms were in the beginning? I had, you know, I've never heard this with all the people I've talked to, this first initial reaction. I was getting ready for a party. I was in New York City and I had this lightning bolt of pain that started at the top of my head and it seared every pore and part of my body went through my body for about, I don't know, five or seven seconds. And it felt as if I was being electrocuted and it took my breath away. I almost passed out and then it went away. And what remained was this pain in my lower back, the size of a tennis ball. And I went to the party that night and the next morning I was meeting girlfriends to race walk in Central Park and we all go at a pretty fast speed. And I said, gosh, I have this backache. I can't go very fast. And I remember them saying, oh, it was probably the heels you wore at the party last night. You know how you think. (laughs) And the backache never ever subsided. And sometimes it was so debilitating, I could hardly get out of bed but mostly it was annoying, nagging, always there. And that's so unlike me. And so when I went to back to Los Angeles where I lived, I didn't even know what kind of a doctor to go to. I mean, I, I go once a year for a checkup and I went to a sports doctor and that's the one that told me to take the enema that I had gas. <laughs> and then I went to my internist and I kept saying, we need another x-ray, we need more tests. This is crazy, it does not go away. And Again, there are symptoms that mask other things that are less serious, but if I had not been persistent in using my voice and finally begging for a scan, I would not be here now. And we shouldn't have to do that. No, we shouldn't. But, you know, I do hear that from a lot of long-term survivors that they had to actually use their voice very strongly to get something done. And like you say, it should not. It's something our doctor should be listening to, especially when they know us and they know we don't come in for every little pain, right? Right. We are not high maintenance. We're diligent about our health care. We take care of ourselves. So they should absolutely listen to us. You had made a comment after, I guess, the doctor had told you you had three to six months to live. If I only have three to six months to live, I don't want to spend them in a hospital. I think you took a very active role in your treatment and something that I don't think a lot of patients, and I want to know, too, what your doctor felt about this. But tell us what it is that you did. I think it's really awesome. 
Well, I asked, was there another way that this treatment would be administered? And he said, well, I was out of town. And he said, you could go to your hotel room and the nurse will come to you. And that's when I said, well, if I have this short period of time, I'd rather be doing things if it certainly doesn't impede the effectiveness of the treatment. So I learned, he said, well, I don't know. No one's ever asked me this before, but I learned how to administer it. And that's when I rode my bike at altitude and I did a lot of things that really gave me joy and pleasure. And you know, Roberta, in reflecting about the journey and you and I meeting and what we've done to succeed, I, for me, I think one of the greatest gifts my doctor gave me is that he gave me, I wanted to live as normally a life as possible. Obviously it's altered, it's changed, but I just didn't want that cancer to rob me of who I was. I'd never been sick. I didn't know what this was like. And you didn't either, except you've had those family experiences, unfortunately. But I just wanted to continue to do what I could do, even if it was abbreviated, it was different. I still wanted to feel as if I wasn't a cancer patient. So that's what I did. And with uh, the traveling, the hiking, the biking with this, and I was able to do it. And so he gave me that license to be somewhat free, continue with the treatment, but not be confined to the hospital or the office. And that's another thing that I think, I coach cancer patients and I, I tell them that, or suggest that really question if, this isn't the way you want it. So for instance, I didn't want to go to the hospital. Is there some other way? I had no idea that I was going to be doing what I was doing. But I think for us to investigate and to maybe not take no for an answer, is there something else? Or what haven't I thought of? Or just to be able to continue to, yes, don't compromise the treatment. You want, obviously, to succeed in this regard, but also to have a life to live. And that gave me meaning and a purpose, and I think even more determination to fight and to live. And I agree, and I, I'm sure he probably looked at you like, what are you talking about? What are you thinking of? But it's great that he did listen and let you have the life that you wanted to choose. And that's why we fight, right, is, is to live, but to live the life. It's it's a quality, not the quantity so much. It's a quality exactly. of life. So. And again, I'm going to quote you because I quote you a lot because I really think you have a lot of good things here. But you said, I believe my life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of what I do with it. I was determined not to let cancer control my life. You developed some invaluable tools that you share with your audience. Can you share some of those with us as well? I will. I think, and you I know will agree with me on this, in the very beginning, the most important thing is to set a plan in place. And in our normal lives, when I say normal, outside of an illness, whether it's professional or how, whatever it looks like, we're used to setting a plan, having a strategy, getting advice, getting the answers. And as we know with pancreatic cancer, that isn't always possible, but setting a plan in place and also know that be flexible. This is gonna change. I had never been sick, so I had no idea. And there's a lot of information that comes in in the very beginning, as you know. People come from love, they wanna help, it's overwhelming. So my advice would be don't wait for everything because that's gonna take a long time and we don't always have the luxury of time. Take baby steps, take action, and then pivot. 
make a change if you feel that's important. I did, and I'm I'm really grateful that I really just I didn't want too much information all at once. I took it baby steps. I took bites. I used my voice. I listened to my instincts, as I said, in more ways than one in all aspects of my health care. I set boundaries. I really realized that the communication, I'm sure that you experience this as well, that it was so hard when people cared and they'd say, how are you doing? I didn't want to relive that last doctor's appointment, that last hospital visit, the surgery, all the side effects, all of the challenges. And honestly, do they really care? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, they care about you, but they don't need to know about all the other things. Right. <laughs> so I really managed and I learned, and now I coach my patients in how to have that conversation that, thank you, I know you're coming from love, I know you care for me, but I have a request. And that is, I can't talk about that last appointment, the next step, the surgery, whatever is going on. And when I feel comfortable, I really will share that with you. But just know for me, that's a gift that you could be giving me. And just think about me, but don't ask me. And then change the subject. And that's what I learned to do. And it was really hard in the beginning. I'm a people pleaser, and I don't want to upset you. And I know you're being really caring and nice. But for me, my preservation, I couldn't keep talking about it. So I was always, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I agree. It's something when people ask me, I'm I, no matter how I felt or whatever, I'm good. I'm good. I'm you know, it's because you don't you don't want to keep reliving it, and you do appreciate that they care, but it's just very difficult to have to rehash it all the time. And so you either use work or whatever it is you can you can to get away. But I think the best piece of advice is you do have to learn to kind of like you say pivot, and you can plan and schedule your day out, but that doesn't mean it's always going to work that way. You know, especially if you're doing treatment. I've been called a control engineer and I kind of had to learn to at some time back away and sort of let that day go and just if I felt horrible then fine go with it but not necessarily try to fight it which I tend to do quite a bit and that can actually work against you. So like I said take those baby steps take one day maybe even it's a minute right. a second at a time whatever better. right? Exactly and just what you said give yourself permission to take a nap to do something like that. One of my patients, he told me something that was so disturbing, and and I don't hear it very often. He was really ashamed about being diagnosed and having a disease, and he's an uber athlete and accomplished and such an amazing person. And I hope that people don't blame themselves or think, oh, it's something I did. I do know after several years into my chemo, uh, journey, I did ask my doctor, what could I have done differently? And he said, absolutely nothing. We, we practice self-care, we take care of ourselves, and and that's why the early detection and the prevention is so important. You know, another thing that you and I are really blessed with, Roberta, especially now, but I thought it was really important. I didn't recognize doing something. Some of my patients choose to not do anything. They want to lie on the sofa and they dwell on the disease and it consumes their thoughts. Skate. I didn't always feel good and want to do things, but I think it's really important to whatever that looks like. If it's art, if it's reading, spending time with your children, walking around the block, getting involved in some kind of support group advocacy whatever it is don't you agree I do and it makes a big difference than 
you know, it, it gives you at least the will and the strength to continue the fight to fight, even if it's just getting up in the morning and washing your face, you know, I mean, any little thing that you can right. grab onto, exactly. right? Because you don't always feel like doing that either. So even the smallest things that you can do. Right. I, know, I think those distractions are really important. It is. And like you say, whether it's taking the walk, reading a book, listening to music, yoga, whatever it happens to be, find what it is that works for you. And it's not wrong. Don't let anybody tell you what you're doing to deal with it is wrong because it's, you know, it's not anything you can do to get through. If it's working for you, it's the right thing for you. It's different for all of us. So what might work for me might not work for you and vice versa. So just find that and go with it. Now, can I do one thing? We need a shout out for your amazing amazing husband. Yes. (laughs) I have to tell you, this will make me cry too. He is always smiling, loving, supportive. When I would see him, it's just embrace me with these open arms. And I hope these caregivers out there get the acknowledgement and the love that they deserve because it's hard on them as well. And he has been so devoted to you and the cause. He is an exceptional well you both are an exceptional couple been married forever i know <laughs> well yeah thank you for that shout out but yeah he's he's an awesome caregiver anything i however crazy whether it's jumping out of planes or whatever he's there to support me through advocacy day everything it's nothing that i ask him that he tells me no and being on both sides of the fence being the caregiver and the patient i can honestly say i think it's the hardest job is to be the caregiver because it's just so much out of your control but He's been awesome. And again, to all those caregivers out there, know how much we as patients and survivors thank you and depend on you because I don't think we could get through this without you. I really don't. Right. It's so true. And another lesson I learned that's so important is vulnerability, asking for help. I'm independent and I don't like to be an inconvenience to anyone. So therefore I don't always ask for help and it's not out of arrogance. I just don't want to bother you. But I realized early on how important that was that I was in a, in a category and in a space where I knew nothing about. And there were so many unanswered questions. So it's really important. There are lots of resources out there and it's important to ask for help and know that you don't have to do this alone. And that I think is really, really important. And I couldn't agree with you more. And as I've been in that same phase and it took me a while to realize that it's okay to ask for help. And I still have problems even today, but it is something that we need to do and just take that moment. And also it helps those people feel better too because they wanna do so much for us and they can't. So if they're asking, let them do something so that they feel like they're being part of it and doing something as well. Right, right. There's something, too, very quickly that you and I share, and I only wanted to mention it because when I say this, people think I'm crazy, but I saw that you felt the same way that I do, and I have said very often that my cancer experience was kind of a gift. It was kind of unique, though not a gift that I want to give to anybody, and I wish my family didn't have to go through it, but it brought me so many different things and opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise meeting people like you and others that I've been able to develop a new family and relationship with. And I know you've shared that same feeling. Like I said, I just wanted to bring that up because people think I'm crazy when I say that. So do you have anything on real quickly? Well, I tell one of the first things I tell patients is you may not understand or accept what I'm about to say, but I promise you it is true. There are so many silver linings to this disease. And right now being here with you is one of them, Roberta. It is 
such a beautiful gift. And I agree with you. I don't want anyone to have a minute of my journey, but it's something I wouldn't trade places with for anything. And there's so much to learn, not only about ourselves, but about others and the gifts that we can give and that we receive and learn and share and grow. And that's beautiful. It is. And I thank you for being with us. And I wish we had more time because there's still more things I want to talk about. But the time goes by so fast. And we dedicate each episode to, to somebody. And I know you mentioned you wanted to do a dedication. So if you'd like to do that now. Thank you. I mentioned that I coach cancer patients. And so for all of them out there that are struggling for the caregivers, I want you to know that you are not alone. There is hope and you have someone like Roberta and myself and just a whole myriad of amazing resources and opportunities, there is hope and you will live and be happy and survive and we're there to help you. Thank you, Lori. And for those who may not see her, she looks beautiful. She looks amazing. She looks very healthy and I'm very happy to have her part of my family. And I love you, Lori, and thank you for doing this. Bye. Thank you, Roberta. Well, there you have it. One more reason to tune in each and every time to Living Hope. A weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real life stories of those really affected and how they deal with it, many times for a long time, on a daily basis. If you'd like to share your story, please contact us. And if you have anyone you know that needs help right now, lots of places to go. We'll give you one you might try if you're here in Southern California patient services at 877-2-PANCAN for more help and information that's 877 and the number 2 P-A-N-C-A-N for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network for the OC Talk Radio Network I'm Paul Roberts thanking you for joining us hoping you'll share this with somebody and come back and hear more as we continue this weekly journey we call Living Hope